Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 2. This is found on page 448 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take the counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in desertion. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Hallie Kay. Well, good morning. Welcome again to the Brookside campus of Christ Community. My name's Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I said at first service, it's actually been a while since I've been up here, so I actually might not know you or have not met you yet. I feel like I went really hard uh, when Bill was on sabbatical, and I've been detoxing all that sermoning, uh, but I'm back, and so uh, I'm excited to be with you. I'm especially excited to kick off a new series uh, to, to, that is going to span this, this Advent season as we set our eyes towards Christmas. Now, you, you may, like Charla said earlier, uh, you may not be that familiar with Advent. Maybe you didn't grow up in a tradition that, that followed the church calendar very closely, or maybe you're just one of those people for whom Christmas begins in, like, October, so Christmas has been going on for a while for you already now, uh, and, and that's, that's great. Uh, but if, if you aren't familiar with Advent, Advent is just a season in the church uh, that leads up to the Christmas season. So it's four or five weeks leading up to uh, Christmas, and traditionally, Advent is a season that's meant to be uh, a time time for waiting and preparation and anticipation. That word Advent itself is just a word that simply means uh, coming. Uh, So we look back at the first coming or the first Advent of Jesus into the world uh, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate Christmas. But if you, uh, you might know that there's another angle to this because many of you know that Jesus promised that he would come again. He promised a second coming, so he'd say things to his disciples like, if I go to prepare a place for you, won't I come back and get you and take you where I'm going to go? He promised that he would come again. So during this season of Advent, it's a time where we both look back to the first Advent of Jesus and look forward with longing and hope to the second Advent of Jesus, when he will return to make all things new, to rid the world of pain and suffering, sickness, injustice, and more. Which means that Advent itself is a time that gives us space to recognize that we live in the middle. We live in a middle ground. So we can both celebrate the birth of Jesus, who is the Messiah and Son of God, who came to take away the sin of the world, who came to usher in his kingdom of peace. We celebrate that. And we also at the same time recognize that that kingdom isn't fully here. We still experience the chaotic effects of sin that run rampant 
in our world, and we feel both of those realities in tension. Some scholars call it the already and not yet tension. So we also yearn in Advent for the day that Jesus returns. So Advent, this, this, this next few weeks, is a time to lean into that yearning, to lean in a little bit to the awkwardness, the struggle of living in the middle. It's a time to prepare our hearts for Christ, a time to face our longings head on instead of immediately caking them over with the fluff of Christmas. It's a time to wrestle with what it means to wait on God, like Israel waited on God. It's a time to follow the lead of the brilliant priest Fleming Rutledge, who says that Advent is a time to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And perhaps there's no book of the Bible that is so comfortable with the juxtaposition of joy and struggle, (laughs) no collection of writings as fearless in naming the darkness, no collection of poetry as in touch with the longings of the human heart, and no authors as raw about their periods of waiting on the Lord as what we find in the book of Psalms. So we're going to be taking these next five weeks and looking at five different psalms this Advent season, and exploring how their honesty with reality and their promises for the future can energize our own longings for the coming of Jesus. And the psalm this morning that, that Hallie Kay read so, so well for us is Psalm 2. Psalm 2, many scholars think, is thought to be the second part of a two-part introduction to the entire collection of psalms. Another way of saying that is to say you have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and they stand on their own, but they also preview what's to come in the next 148 psalms. They're kind of an introduction to the book. So it's a really, really important psalm. It sets the tone and the themes for what's to come. It's also likely that at one point, Psalm 1 and 2 were actually one psalm together, and that eventually over the years, we ended up breaking them up into two, but when they were originally composed, they were meant to go together. We'll get to why that's important in a minute. But if you haven't already, why don't you open to Psalm 2 so we can explore this this magnificent Hebrew poem together. This morning, we're going to briefly observe four things that the author of Psalm 2 does that are going to orient us to the Psalms as a whole, that are going to orient us to the season of Advent, and they're going to kind of set the stage for where we're headed in the rest of the series. So I got really creative. I'm calling them four things, four things uh, that, that this author of Psalm 2 does. Another way we could say it is to say that these are four ways that Psalm 2 speaks to our own Advent longings today. So here's the first one. The first thing that Psalms 2 does right off the bat is this. It addresses a question that we all ask. It addresses a question we all ask. In fact, I would guess, based off of the state of things in the world today, you've probably asked this question in the last week at some point. So here's how Psalm, the psalm starts in, in verse 1. I invite you to read along with me. Read the first three verses. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So you might have noticed the poet kicks off Psalm 2 by asking this question. Why do the nations rage? Have you found yourself asking that question recently? Why do the nations rage? Maybe you haven't put it exactly like that. Another way you could ask it would be to ask, like, what's going on in the world? 
what in the world is going on? Why is there so much chaos around us? Why do the nations rage? We ask questions like this when we look abroad and we see the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. We ask questions like this when we see the affairs of powerful nations like China or North Korea. We ask questions like this when we see the insurgents and turmoil in the Middle East. We ask questions like this when we see senseless tragedies like the horrific crowd collapse in Seoul. We ask questions like this when we have a front row seat, as we have over the last few years, to the growing extremism and political unrest in the United States and in the West as a whole. And the pandemic and social media and recent election cycles have only served to, to heighten our sense of worldwide upheaval, right? The very things that we thought would bring us together have only made the chaos clearer. Why do the nations rage? This is the kind of question that even though recently it's been heightened in our imaginations because of our current realities and kind of our shared cultural anxiety right now, but it's actually a question that's been asked in every era of human history. We look back on the great world wars or the cruelty of slavery or the medieval Christian crusades or the rise and fall of various empires. We can't help but ask that question in retrospect. Why do the nations rage? And apparently, it was a, a question that was incredibly relevant for the Jewish people over a thousand years before Christ came because it's here in Psalm 2. That word nations there is the Hebrew word uh, goyim. Goyim, it just means nations. And for a long time, that word goyim was basically a swear word for the Jewish people. That was not, you wouldn't say goyim in a positive way because in their experience, the nations, the goyim, represented oppression. They represented slavery. They represented exploitation, abuse of power. So what happened in the time of, of Israel back when this psalm was written is, is you would have kind of around Israel this constant state of flux as various empires waxed and waned. Some goyim would rise up against each other and against the people of Israel, seeking to control power at all costs, and then they'd fall away and another empire would rise, and so on and so forth. As the great philosopher Jonathan Groff says, oceans rise, empires fall, Right? And often, both in the rising and the falling, people are crushed into the dust in the process. Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, whatever is specifically going on in the background of this psalm, what the author is depicting is kind of an international conflict where political leaders around the world are banding together and setting themselves against the threat of God and God's king and God's people. I mean, just think about that for a minute. When was the last time you heard political leaders agree with each other on anything? It's been a while. But somehow the one thing they always seem to agree on is that they want to do it without God and even against God. The psalm is, says that they are plotting, right? He says they, they rage and then he says they plot in vain. And that word plot is actually the same Hebrew word, if you know Psalm 1, that's used and translated as meditate. So in Psalm 1, it says, blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. Psalm 2, this word for plot is the same exact word, just translated as plot. So in Psalm 1, you're meditating on God's word. Here, the leaders are meditating on how to rebel against God, how to throw off the chains of religion, to seek more power and control. They're continuing the efforts of Adam and Eve in the garden, 
They're continuing the project of Babel in Genesis 11 and this cycle that has continued throughout human history up to this present day. Here's how cultural commentator Mark Sayers observes this dynamic at play in our world today. He says, we build militaries and borders to protect us from the evil outside us, and we create police forces, legal systems, and punishments to protect us from the evil within. We intuitively grasp that if we are to flourish, love, create, and build, we must be protected from the flesh that always lurks both within and without. Thus, our cultures contain the chains of which Psalm 2 speaks, the restraints that we create to protect us from the flesh. They are on one hand God-given, yet they also have the potential, and how often have we seen this, when disconnected from their divine source to become overrun by the flesh themselves. And so a cycle emerges, a self-defeating vortex. Our nations, our cultures, our places, and indeed our religions buffers against the flesh and its chaos, soon turn into barriers distancing us from God, which is an essential component of the flesh and chaos. These systems take on a life of their own and go rogue, becoming destructive rather than protective forces. And he finishes saying, we take up attitudes and actions that oppose the reign of God in our lives and further add to the chaos. Now, we feel this happening today a little bit, don't we? I think what Sayers is suggesting is something like this, that we feel the chaos and the raging of the nation so acutely today precisely because our own human projects for peace without God are failing us. Our own projects for peace without God are failing us. The psalmist says in verse 2 that the nations plot in vain. In other words, spoiler alert, it's not going to work. It's in vain. And friends, it's not working now. In the West, we have been fed a promise that we are progressing towards utopia, that certain ideologies will bring peace, protection, and prosperity to the world if they win out, that suffering is just a blip on the map of worldly pleasure and happiness, that the comfort and consumerism that thrives in America will keep us insulated from the pain and the chaos of the world. That's the promise we've been fed. And as those things fall around us, as those promises don't bear true, chaos breaks out. Our nation rages against God, against government, against neighbor. Anxiety skyrockets. The nation's rage because they plot for a way to have the kingdom of God without the king. And we reap the reward of anxiety and instability when our efforts to do that fail. That's why the nations rage. And the first thing Psalm 2 does is give us permission to just lean in and ask that hard question. What's going on with the chaos around us? Here's the second thing it does. After asking that question, he then offers us a confidence that we all long for. He offers us a confidence we all long for. Here's how it continues in verse 4. Let's pick up there. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So when we're tempted to ask, as I have asked very recently, where is God 
in the middle of this worldly chaos? Like, what is he doing as these nations are raging against each other? Where is he? Here's the perspective that Psalm 2 gives us. He's sitting on his throne in the heavens, and he's laughing. That's interesting, isn't it? God's laughing. That might be kind of a surprising response. But I want to suggest that it's actually the very confidence we all long to have when we see the upheaval in our world. It's the confidence we long to have. Because here's the assurance Psalm 2 gives us in the middle of the chaos. God sees. God isn't surprised. God is in control. And God laughs at our foolish attempts to plot against him and his people because no human coalition can thwart his purposes. And here's what I want to submit to you this morning. When the foolishness and chaos wrought by human beings threatens to steal our peace, we desperately need to hear the laughter of God. We desperately need to hear the laughter of God. Now, what do I mean by that? I want you to think for a minute about what happens when someone makes a joke during like a tense or nerve-wracking moment. So yeah, you're anxious, you're afraid, and then someone cracks a joke. What happens? I'm not a big scary movie person. Uh, I just don't get it. Some of you are, and that's fine, whatever. I'm just, I just don't like it, right? I like suspenseful shows. I just can't do like the overt horror thriller movies. Never enjoyed those experiences at all. But I can still remember the first scary movie that I ever watched, okay? It was this movie, you might remember it, it's a movie called When a Stranger Calls. I think we have a picture on the screen. It's called When a Stranger Calls. Anyone remember this movie? I watched it when I was in middle school at my friend Craig's house. And we started at like 1 a.m., which is a terrible idea. What a bad idea. And I was so scared. I hated it. I hated it so much. But I remember at one point during the movie, like one of the scariest parts of the movie, someone made a joke, because there's also things to laugh at in these movies. Someone cracked a joke, and all of a sudden the movie wasn't as scary. There's something about laughter that immediately sets us at ease when we're tense, nervous, or outright afraid, isn't there? I mean, kids, we have several kids with us this morning. Can you, have you ever had that moment where you're afraid of something, but you see your mom or dad smiling and laughing and you know it's going to be okay? I think we can say something similar about God's laughter in Psalm 2. When God laughs, I think it means he isn't afraid. He isn't as anxious as we are. That doesn't mean, I want to be clear on this, that doesn't mean he's flippant about our problems or doesn't care about the upheaval in our world. He cares deeply. Anyone who's ever laughed with a friend right after they've been crying on their shoulder knows that laughter can coexist with weeping, right? And the brilliant paradox and perfection in Christ is that he is deeply grieved by the things that deeply grieve us. And at the same time, he laughs because he knows they don't have ultimate power and they won't have the final say. So God's laughter is not like this delight in the misery of the world. It's not fun at our expense. It's him mocking our human pride and rebellion. It's a sign that he remains seated, enthroned in heaven. It means that he is the king over every king, even as people are rebelling against his kingship. God laughs because he has installed his king and no one can uninstall his king. God laughs because he is on the throne and no one can get him off it. God laughs because the leaders on earth think they have escaped his rule, but they haven't. 
God laughs because little do they know that long after their bones are buried in the ground, a child will come who upends every hubristic idea of power we cling to. His laughter is a sign that we need not embrace the systemic anxiety of our world today. In other words, he laughs because he will have the last laugh. So let me suggest again that when the foolishness and chaos wrought by human beings threatens to steal our peace, we desperately need to hear the laughter of God because God's laughter disarms our anxiety. It disarms our fear. That's what we all long for, right? We all long to know that someone is enthroned over all the kingdoms in heaven and on earth. We long that it be true that there is a king who's ultimately in control, to whom all other kings and nations will answer. And that's where the psalm turns next. Here's the third way the poet speaks to our Advent longings this morning. He promises a king that we all need. He promises a king we all need. Let's look how it continues in verse 7 and pick up these next three verses. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, if you know anything about your Hebrew Bible, you might know that this is clearly tapping into a promise that God made in the book of 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with probably Israel's most famous king, King David. And God promises King David that he will have an enduring and everlasting throne so that his kingdom will never end. And it's that promise in 2 Samuel 7 that gave rise to the popular idea for Jewish people that God would send a Messiah. They had this hope that God would send a king who would come and restore Israel, who would free them from their oppressors, whether it's Rome or Babylon or Assyria. He'd set them free. He'd set things right, and he would reign in peace and power and justice and mercy forever. This was the Jewish hope, was this Messiah king figure. And Psalm 2 is kind of leaning back on that promise to tell us that God has a plan to establish a king, his son, whose reign would extend to the ends of the earth. That he has a plan to send a king who will crush injustice, who will subdue the prideful earthly kings, who will perish in their rebellion against his kingship. He says he has a plan to send a king who will not sow discord like these earthly leaders that we see in Psalm 2, but would sow peace. He would send a king who is just, who will crush the oppressive powers, who will oppose the proud and bring justice to the world. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is the king that we both want and need. We want someone like this, don't we? Now, at this point, it's important to remember what I mentioned earlier about how intricately connected Psalms 1 and 2 are. Because Psalm 1, it highlights the way that the, of the righteous man, the man who, who delights in God, who meditates on his word. And then Psalm 2 highlights the, the one true king, the king who reigns with God over all kings on earth that plot against him. So you have this Psalm 1 righteous man who meditates on God's word, and this Psalm 2 king who reigns with God over everything. And Christopher Ashe, who's a, a scholar on the book of Psalms, puts it this way. I think this is really, really profound. He says, we are all looking for a Psalm 1 man who can be the Psalm 2 king, a perfect righteous man 
who can reign in perfect peace and subdue the chaos of the world. We are looking for a Psalm 1 man who can be a Psalm 2 king. And these nations and rulers that are rebelling in Psalm 2 are examples of kings who aren't the Psalm 1 man. And what God promises is that I'm going to send a Psalm 1 man who can be a Psalm 2 king. And he's the kind of king that we all want and need. And what we remember in this season of Advent is that God sent that king. He sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah. But we don't just remember that he sent him and that he came. We remember how he came. We remember that he came to a poor woman named Mary who would say this in Luke chapter 1. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 2, bringing down the proud, exalting the humble? We remember that he came to a woman like that. We remember that he came into a world like ours of raging nations, so much so that people in power like Herod plotted to kill God's king while he was still a newborn. Sounds like Psalm 2. We remember that he came in humility as an infant, that even as a child, people like the Magi from other nations, right? So the Magi were Goyim. They were from other nations, and they came and they streamed to Jesus to worship him, just as the prophets had predicted that he would be a light to the nations. We remember that he lived most of his life in obscurity, that he claimed his kingship not by force, but that he walked a path of weakness from his birth in a manger to his coronation on a cross. Here's Mark Sayers again, describing how Jesus claimed his crown. There's no grand procession to a palace, only a painful march outside the city. No royal fragrances or incense, only the stinking waste of rotting garbage. No resplendent throne inlaid with the plunders of an empire, only a common cross made for anyone. No golden crown of shining jewels, only thorns digging into his flesh. No royal wine flowing in celebration, only blood and water spilling from his side. No torches or parades, only a cosmic darkness. No cheers, only the sobs of women standing at a distance, faithful to the gory end. That's how our king claimed his crown. And on the other side of Calvary, God promises that he will once again send his son to redeem the world from its bondage and bring his kingdom fully and completely. Which means that when we see the injustice of our world, when we have been wronged by others, we know that the promised king will set wrongs right. He'll break the yoke of the oppressors. He will vindicate his church and we will reign with him in glory forever. The chaos of our world reveals that we need a true king. And God sent that king once, and he will send him again. And in the meantime, we are confident of the words of the great Christmas hymn that we sang earlier. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. At the end of the day, this is the ultimate trajectory of Psalm 2. Can I make it really simple? Jesus reigns. In the chaos of our world, Jesus reigns. And in light of that reality, the psalmist has addressed a question that we all ask. He's given us a confidence we long for. He's promised the king we all need. And here's the last thing Psalm 2 does. It extends an invitation that we all receive. 
The very last stanza of the poem begins with a warning, but it ends with an invitation. And it could really be seen of two sides of the same coin, right? It's a warning and an invitation depending on how you respond to it. So here's how the psalm closes. Let's read these last three verses. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in light of all of this certainty of God's king and this judgment that awaits those who persist in their rebellion against him, the psalmist ends by warning the leaders on earth, hey, if all of this is true, you should probably be wise. Like, think about this a little bit. He urges them to turn from their plotting, turn from one way of meditating and meditate on the other thing, and to serve the Lord with fear. He urges them, be wise, live in trembling before the king of all kings. He urges them to give sincere homage to him with the kiss of honor. That's what that kiss the sun is. It's just a way of showing honor. It says, honor him sincerely. And there's a profound sense of urgency here because for the author of this psalm, it will not do to wait it out and it will not do to continue in mutiny against God. Neither one of those is a good option. Because one way or another, he says, the king will come in anger and judgment. So the only wise thing to do is to submit to his rule and reign as soon as possible. There's urgency. Scholar Derek Kidner helps us understand the the anger of Christ that's spoken of here. Here's what he says. He says, this quick anger may sound like the touchiness of a despot, but the true comparison is with Christ, whose wrath, like his compassion, blazed up at wrongs which left his contemporaries quite unruffled. It's a very British way of saying that. Quite unruffled. Get this. God's patience is not placidity. Any more than his fierce anger is loss of control, his laughter cruelty, or his pity sentimentality. When his moment comes for judgment in any given case, it will be by definition beyond appeasing and beyond postponing. Now, this warning about the anger of the king doesn't end with judgment, actually. It ends with mercy, like everything else in Scripture. It's honest about judgment, but always ends with mercy. Because there's an invitation at the end. It's an invitation for the world leaders who are actively rebelling against God. It's, it's for you and I who are actively rebelling against God at times. Here's the invitation. It's the last line of the psalm. Let's read it again. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here's the invitation. Hope in the one true king. Place your hope in the one true king. Take refuge in Jesus, the one who has authority over all things and guides all the chaos of our world toward his purposes. Take refuge in the, in the one of whom the angel Gabriel said when he was still an infant, These words, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I'll speak for myself. That it's easy in times of upheaval or when things seem unstable around me. For me to take refuge in all sorts of things, thinking they will give me comfort and security 
in the midst of the chaos. So we see nations raging, and we come face to face with the chaos of our world, and what we want to do is we want to insulate ourselves. So we create structures and cultures and new nations and and different fads and, and, and consumerism and different ways to try to comfort and protect us and insulate us. But often what happens is those very things that we think are going to protect us and give us refuge become insidious themselves, and we're left wondering what the heck is going on. Chaos rages within because the things we have already placed our hope in are failing us. The promises that we were given that we would be liberated by any certain ideology or social system seem to not be coming true. That's the world we live in right now. The things we have taken refuge in are leaving us high and dry, and that's why we feel anxious. Just like the leaders in Psalm 2 take refuge in their own might and prowess, In a similar way, we can all take refuge in our own many kingdoms that we create, hoping that they will shield us from the chaos of the world. But friends, none of these will deliver what we long for. We cannot have the kingdom without the king. So this Advent season, you are invited to take refuge in the promised king in the middle of pervasive chaos. You're invited to take refuge and the promised king over all those other things. Because the nations go on raging, God goes on laughing, Jesus goes on reigning, and we go on hoping. Let's pray. God, give us the courage to face the darkness both within and without. Give us the courage to submit even those areas of our life that are furthest from being under your rule and to submit those things to you, to put our whole selves as soon as possible under your reign. God, give us the courage to take refuge in you when it would be easier to take refuge in other things in the short term. And God, I think that we need courage and daring to hope in your coming and in your kingdom. So give us the courage to hope even when things look bleak even when we want to despair. God, help us see how much we need you. And we pray, as we're going to here in a minute again, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of his Spirit. Amen.